Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where we are exploring the crossroads of happiness and horror. Why do we like to be so scared? Let's join a conversation with my first guest, S.A. Bradley. He is the author of Screaming for Pleasure, How Horror Makes You Healthy and Happy. Scott Bradley is the host of the popular podcast, Hellbent for Horror, exploring all things horror across books, film, comics, and music. Bradley has loved being scared by over 1,600 horror films. He's turned his passion into purpose, sharing his expansive knowledge on dozens of podcasts and in anthologies like Medium Chill and Evil Speak Magazine. Prior to becoming a champion of horror, Bradley served in the U.S. Air Force and was a firefighter. He now lives in San Francisco Bay Area with his wife and their dog, Fiona, and he's in the house. Hi, Scott. Hello. Thank you so much for having me on, Lisa. Oh, it's a pleasure. All right. I want to get into this because, first of all, I'm a scaredy cat. Like, Mm-hmm. I'm scared enough by life that I will not pay good money to be scared in the movies. So I would love for you to tell <laughs> me about why horror resonates with audiences. Well, I think that horror resonates with audiences and why we say things like, oh, I'm a scaredy cat. Uh, Life is scary enough. I really don't need to be scared in the movie theaters. Well, we don't go there to be terrified and be at risk. We don't go to the movies where we go, you know, there just might be an explosion in this place. Uh, We're taking our lives into our own hands. (laughs) We go there because we know we're going to be safe while we're experiencing something that we may need a release from. So for some of us, I'm not going to say that it's for everybody, but for some of us, what we do is we have this huge amount of angst that we're getting from just walking this planet. And sometimes we just want to have fun releasing some of that, or sometimes we just need to release it and it has nothing to do with fun. And we find that it is something that we can be, uh, some of our issues that we may have, we're not even aware that we have them. They're inarticulate. Uh, we cannot tell somebody if someone says what's wrong with us, we'll make some weird noise because it's something deep down in the, in that uh, shadow part of us. We go to a horror film or we listen to loud music or we go to an art festival, uh, we suddenly release this thing that we didn't even know we had. Our body almost automatically knows that we need this release. And sometimes with horror, we go in there and we get this moment where we can transfer whatever that thing is that's bothering us into whatever the monster is on the screen, whatever it is. And by the end, we survive that. And suddenly we've gone from taking a fear and we turn it into a thrill because that thing will never scare us quite the same way again after we've seen it in the film. And so that's the kind of thing we look at. 
And, and it sounds a bit like, you know, the heroic journey, Joseph Campbell's model, right? That we go in there and we slay the dragon or we, we, we beat the monster and we overcome and transform ourselves as a result. Yes. And in fact, I even say that a lot, not exactly that, but I say that the dark woods don't come to you. There's a reason that horror is as it is. And people go, uh, would you like to see it become mainstream? And in a way I go, no, it's not its purpose. Its purpose is not to be uh, here offering you half of its sandwich. You need to go to the woods. And that's part of the deal. It's like, I am willing at this point to come to this thing and allow myself to be opened up in a certain way. And so that is like a heroic journey. You have to realize that you're going on a journey. You need to make that choice yourself. And hard does not deserve your shame. Hard does not deserve any of those <laughs> things. It is just there, right? <laughs> yeah, and indeed it is. Talk a little bit about the evolution of horror movies. And I mean, there's such a resurgence of horror in the media these days in terms of, well, A, the news, but, but, B, but B, also in what we see on TV and, and at the box office. Well, sure. Thanks. Uh, what I'll say is that we're in a very interesting time all over, but we're in a very interesting time for horror cinema because most of the time when people talk about horror movies over the years, there's usually one trend that's just the big trend that everybody knows. And like, oh, well, horror movies are always about people getting stabbed or oh, horror movies are always about people getting possessed. But we're at a time right now where there are multiple types of horror films that are out there. There are ones that are uh, full of dread. There are ones that that are extremely violent. There are ones that are ghost stories. So it's almost as if you can find the thing that you need to find. When we're talking about ghost stories, I like to say our horror stories, the second story ever told <laughs> was probably a horror story. I like to think the campfire, you have everybody around the campfire and the, the wise man goes, I want to thank all of you for being here. You are my family. You are my tribe. You are my community. And the second story he tells is don't go out there. If you go out there, there's this big monstrous thing. Stay here. This is where it's safe. And so it's the cautionary tale that comes right after the, the greeting into the into the tribe. And we've had that in all sorts of forms through the years, uh, whether it be movies or books or music even, where you have things like murder ballads, where people were singing songs in the 1700s about actual murders that happened. And those are the most popular uh, songs of that time period in Europe. Uh, when we get to the movies, I think horror is one of the uh, most beautiful art forms because it's the most diverse art form that's out there because it is tailor-made for allegory and metaphor. So from the very beginning, we uh, had films that were trying to mimic real life. But not long after that, Edison made the first Frankenstein. Nobody knows about it because it was very short and not very popular. But already the idea of how we can take a medium such as film, which takes in every other art form and puts it all together into one spot and creates its own magic, its own hypnotism, that of course we would go into the more expressionistic and subconscious levels. And I think that horror taps into that and is almost a natural fit. It takes a lot of work, of course, to make something look very realistic. It also takes a lot of work to make things feel like a nightmare, to time it in that way. <laughs> and I think that you find that with movies and horror, uh, it, it's that artificiality uh, that is a, a semi-reality while you're watching the film that really works to horror's uh, advantage. And I think that uh, we all 
have some form of shadow self. We have a form of us that loves the forbidden. And the horror movie allows us to go towards that forbidden. Horror literature certainly makes allows us to go uh, towards the forbidden. And we get to have a taste that's safe. We get to handshake with that shadow. Yeah, I think. Oh, I think you hit the nail on the head. That it's that it's safe. It's contained. You go. You kind of go into that forest for that two-hour period, and you know you're going to come out. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if I would buy the uh, ticket. <laughs> Although I must say, there are people that uh, when they hear, "Oh, I, there's an extreme haunted house," where they grab you and throw you in a box, there are people who go, "I can't wait <laughs> to get in line for that." But not everybody does, and I think one of the things is that you do have this thing of being safe. You realize that you're going to work something out. And for me, horror was something that uh, helped me through my life at many different times. Very young. I saw a horror film I shouldn't have seen. And it just so happened it helped me get through a really bad part of my childhood when my parents were getting divorced and I was part of a fundamentalist religion that thought the world was going to end that year. And that made me very unpopular <laughs> at Whoa. school. Yeah, a little <laughs> bit of insanity. Uh, and I did not know how to deal with anything. And of course, if you're uh, deep in a religious uh, fervor, gothic stuff is all over the place uh, unconsciously. But I saw a horror film where a, a child died and the parents were screaming and wailing and it immediately registered with me. I was traumatized first. For about three days I had nightmares, but after that I couldn't get that out of my head. And I realized later, obviously, I didn't articulate it at eight years old, but I realized it was all about how parents aren't always there to save you. And sometimes yeah. parents don't know how to deal with the world. And I didn't feel alone. It didn't give me an answer. But I no longer felt like I had such a specific problem that no one could help me. And I think that when we get to uh, the age of adulthood, we are a specific answer to a specific problem that was in the universe. <laughs> Whatever our childhood was, we have found a way to circumnavigate that. And at times, horror was the way for me uh, because I just loved the symbolism and I was really thinking about Uncle Carl or whatever his name might be uh, when I was looking at Frankenstein or I was looking at me when I saw Frankenstein. This is really fascinating. I, as I mentioned, I'm not a, a fan of, of horror films per se, although one of my favorite that I've seen and I still can go back to the moment I watched it was a, the first Alien with Sigourney Weaver. Mm -hmm. And I was scared out of my wits and loved it. Yeah, it's it, was, a, it was so different. Yeah, it's a wonderfully primal film. And there's that whole weird sexuality that's going on in that film as well. I mean, the the, the, the monster itself is phallic. It gives birth uh, through a man. All of these weird tensions that you can feel on that. And I love, uh, I can't tell you how often I run a, a podcast called Hellbent for Heart. I get email all the time. 70% of the emails that I get start with, I really am not a big fan of horror. But, <laughs> but I guess, so I'm, I'm right there in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have a thing that I talk about, and it's actually the first chapter inside of the book, which is your first kiss with horror, how horror hooks you. And I ask people on the show, what's your first kiss? What's the movie that you remember that galvanized you? Uh, and if you're not a horror fan, I think a lot of times people define the entire genre by the movie that they hated, whatever yeah. it was that hit them. 
And I think for people who love it, it's the same thing. You have this first romantic kiss uh, that you were uh, probably you had way too early. Your parents told you you shouldn't have it and you still had it. And uh, in that first kiss, I hear an awful lot from people who did not like horror films or still don't, but they can't help but be compelled to talk about that forbidden piece. I go to conventions and they're not always horror conventions and people will go, ah, Hellbent for horror, huh? Okay, yeah, well, I don't really think much of horror. And we're still talking 20 minutes later because <laughs> there's something in there that is compelling. And we all have something. I like to tell people that you used to love horror movies and you secretly still do. Well, I, you know, I, I, you, you've converted me. You know, I, <laughs> I, as you're talking, I'm like, you know, he's really right. Because I would swear up and down that I dislike horror, but then I've got these these moments that are imprinted in my mind, and I and I know the reasons why I like them. We're going to need to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with Scott Bradley about his podcast, Hellbent for Horror, his new book, Screaming for Pleasure: How Horror Makes You Healthy and Happy. And I want to get into that chemical stuff about that when we get back, Scott. Um, to learn more and to connect with Scott, please do at hellbentforhorror.com, on Twitter at hellbenthorror, and on Facebook, hellbentforhorror. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. Welcome back to the show. We are exploring the crossroads of happiness and horror, why we love being scared. My guest today is S.A. Bradley. Let's return to the conversation. So, Scott, prior to the break, we were talking about why we like horror movies. I was deny, deny, deny that I liked horror movies. You've converted me over to your side. <laughs> so I lied. I do like horror movies <laughs> of a certain kind. <laughs> Of course. <laughs> but I want to talk about the chemistry, like what happens to our brains that makes us feel so euphoric when we see a good horror flick that we really like? Well, that's that's a great question, because uh, one of the things that people, when they talk about horror and they are somewhat denigrating it. They talk about, well, why do you have to have this weird thing of like sex and violence always happening? Who's the moral bankrupt that brought that together? And what I like to say is, I don't know how to tell you this, but it's always been with us. There's no one really, one person to blame. There's no one amoral swine. It's uh, <laughs> sex and violence are always linked in our brains. And we're finding that out. It's a dark side of our biology. Uh, I think that scientists have now discovered that even though these two behaviors seem like they are opposites, they both share the same part of the brain, the hypothalamic attack region. And so what we're doing when we're going into either highly euphoric moments or highly frightening moments or highly charged moments where it might feel that there's pain, we have uh, more uh, these wonderful shots of dopamine and serotonin. Uh, they're the pleasure and reward drugs. So pleasure and pain and fear, those things all get the same yum yum. And we really like that yes. yum yum. <laughs> yum yum. Yes, we do. <laughs> That <laughs> uh, gives me a good chuckle. Well, and the nucleus accumbens, I mean, now that we're talking like neuroscience and geekery, right? That that's the pleasure center of the brain. Right. And that 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 puppy dog lights up in the presence of these good things. 
Yeah, we share the same neural circuits and the same uh, intense arousal hormones. I think there was a thing, uh, I think it was molecular basis of aggression trends in neurosciences back in like 2001, they started talking about this. And I think there was a little bit of hue and cry. And I think now everybody's just kind of going, yeah, yeah, I guess you're right. Well, you know, we want to feel good. And sometimes it's in the feeling bad or feeling fearful. And then the relief from that feeling, you know, that comic moment that sometimes comes in these films that makes us feel happy. I, I think so as well. I think one of the reasons that I love talking about horror and I try to let people know, hey, you probably like it a little bit more than you would think, is that. We have this weird thing where we talk about behaviors if there is certain emotions that align good and certain emotions that align with bad. And the reality is emotions are emotions. Like you just said, we love to feel good. And I think it's kind of like uh, if you uh, talk to people who have gone through some form of recovery, they talk about halt, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Well, hungry, angry, lonely, tired are not problems. These are actual reminders. These are your moments that say, hey, you know, what you need something to eat hey you know what you should go talk to somebody they're not issues it's when you don't eat for five days and you hate someone for 30 years that's where the problem (laughs) comes in so us having these small jumps of uh, these things that are already in us I, I like to go in that Jungian style. I like mm-hmm. the idea that uh, you have a persona that you put on for everybody else, but there's a the shadow, shadow <laughs> that's reminding you to be honest and you can uh, ignore it. You can deny it at your own peril. I think when you do at your own peril, that's when you end up on the nightly news and a big scandal and things like that because the shadow finally bursts over and with horror and these weird pleasure pain things that we do, we get to have a healthy handshake with that shadow and kind of a pressure cooker uh, release valve in a strange way. But I think that that's why if you go to, say, horror conventions, people who are there may not have had the most enjoyable childhoods. You would never know it when they're together. Sense of tribe, but also laughing a lot because they're in a way working stuff out that a lot of times normal, quote unquote, normal society likes to repress, likes to keep in private. Yeah. Well, and and cinema therapy for our listeners is a real thing, no pun intended, right? There, there is a genre within psychotherapy where the therapist is prescribing films to the client, asking the client to watch these things and come in and talk about it as a way to work through what might otherwise be difficult to access and then articulate. Right. I actually have a chapter in the book uh, about phobias. And uh, I say, first off, there's no letters after my name. Uh, This is a book called Screaming for Pleasure. So don't go off your meds. (laughs) But at the same point, if you're interested in movies that may just hit on that spot where you get a tingle, I, I wouldn't say that people who are deeply phobic should watch something that's going to traumatize them. But if you're the kind of person who gets the ickies and feels a little bit weird about certain things, maybe you're like me in certain spots where I run towards a thing that I'm a little bit frightened over. I'm curious. I want to see what happens. It's all the Scoville uh, heat meter that they have for peppers, but for horror. And uh, (laughs) I think uh, there's a lot that I say about that where uh, I got over arachnophobia through the most ridiculous of things, seeing enough weird spider movies, but also weird memes that were on uh, the internet where the spiders saying things like, hey, I just uh, got rid of all the termites in your house. And, oh, are you coming to, sh- I don't really read the newspaper. In other words, the person's coming to kill it. And somehow that humanized 
uh, the spider in a way I hadn't seen before. And I think sometimes when you watch things like this and you can talk through a, a therapist, like you're saying, I think you can work through stuff that you might not even know you have. And I think that's what's cool about the subconscious. Well, and hence the, the aspect of vicarious thrills. You know, I think that yes. this is why we, we like our horror films. I want to ask you about the difference in how men and women interpret their fear from these films. Like, you know, is a guy white knuckling it and a woman crawling in his lap? I mean, how does this work? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think there's a, a set rate, mating ritual that people go in with a pre-planning of. <laughs> but uh, I think the reality of how we watch, uh, it's very interesting. Bella Lugosi said back in, in the day that women are just attuned to horror. Women are bigger fans of horror than men are. And it's because of the, the tragedy and the nightmare and the blood and all the madness that's there that they're just attuned to it on an emotional level a little bit better. I didn't know what to think of that when I heard that. And then I just came from the Women in Horror Film Festival uh, in Georgia, where it was a four-day festival of short films directed by women. And they were all big horror fans from when they were kids. And they were just attracted to it. And they found ways to look at it in a certain perspective. And I think there's a very interesting thing that's happening in horror right now where women in horror are creating something that I think is kind of akin to French New Wave or Italian neorealism. It's not a change in stories. It's a change in style and perspective. And they're looking at horror from a different perspective and a different level of uh, worry, vulnerability, anxiety, what have you than what we normally see in traditional uh, male-dominated horror. A great one would be The Babadook. There's a movie called The Babadook where uh, in a normal horror film, we have the resolution that has to happen. We need to find out what the monster needs. Uh, we need to kill the monster or we need to be killed by the monster. But the movie made by this woman comes up with a very interesting thing, which is we need to learn how to live with this monster. We need to learn how to go through things with this monster because a monster in that movie is a metaphor and it's a metaphor for a human condition. Yeah. And when I got done with that movie, I was going, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. She just came up with a new ending that has never been in, in horror films. So there's this gray area that I think uh, women enjoy in horror. I think there's uh, kind of like how I feel about horror, which is, uh, boy, I love really feeling nervous. I love when a movie actually gets to me. I love when a movie doesn't end happy because I know that the world doesn't always end happy. And I feel brave. I feel brave and I feel that that person was brave for saying that. And I go, I'm not alone. A lot of this is really, I don't have to go through this world alone. There, yeah. are, there are people who feel exactly like I do, even in the horror world, even when I'm thinking terrible thoughts, because we all have them. Well, it can't exist uh, on the screen if it's not existing in our hearts and minds, right? I mean, it's right. just, it's a reflection of society. Yes, very much so. And I would say that uh, if you really want to take a look at society, and it's always a Monday morning quarterback kind of thing, you can only look backwards, you can't look forwards, but take a look at the horror movies of any given time period, and you can see the social concerns, the anxieties that were happening, not just what scares people, but how people felt about certain things. Pro and con are both shown. If you look at the 50s, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, it has the allegory on equal measures, either being a 
a screed on McCarthyism or a screed on communism. Both of those are equally relevant because both of those are major concerns at that time. You have giant bug movies, ants coming out everywhere. It's interesting that most of those movies start in the New Mexico desert, and it's because of radiation from an atom bomb that these ants are so huge. I think we were still working out a lot of what the angst was of being the first major superpower, the only major superpower that's ever dropped uh, an atomic weapon on living, breathing human beings. And that we didn't know what happened with that Pandora's box. And then you go to, say, the late 60s where you have Rosemary's Baby and you have all these weird devil baby movies and weird, they're going to take my baby movies. And that's happening right around when the world is starting to change for women. where yes. uh, this equal rights amendments is trying to occur. So you see all these things. It doesn't say that it's for or against. It says, you're worried about this. I live in this world. I feel the nerve trembling. We're going to make a movie about this. And I think we do that almost unconsciously. Art does that. Art can heal. And I think horror is art. I, I agree with you. And, and now I'm thinking back to The Exorcist. When it came out, people were lined yeah. up around yep. the block. Carrie was another one that was very popular back in the day. And I'm probably dating myself, but that's okay. You know, I'm not as bad as I have. <laughs> <laughs> but and so, you know, we're almost out of time. And I want to ask you to sort of key us in to where horror is going in during the horror show that we're living in now. Mm. I hope I put that correctly. Uh, I think think you know what I mean. I think I got your gist. I I think it's a really interesting time where we have horror. We're really feeling like a community because it is so diverse at this point. You just have to take a look at the best pictures of last year. Two out of what I think there were seven films that were picked were horror films that dealt with horror elements Mm. and one one that has never happened before there's been one you know uh, say the exorcist or jaws was up you know they throw a biscuit oh yeah Uh, jaws but you don't have um, uh, where two you have only seven slots for all the films that were released and two of the major lists were horror films and to me that speaks volumes that slowly but surely we're starting to at least realize that there are different levels of horror uh, out there, and there are, is a need for it. Like I like to say that you know, horror is not a uh, social need; it's a human need. Ultimately, I think horror endures because deep down we need it. We need to stand in boogeyman, especially when things are horrible. It's uh. not social cultural; it's a human need. There's a reason that there's a house in every town in the world that kids believe is haunted. That's not an American thing; that's a, a person thing. Uh, that's, yeah. that's, 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 that goes back to that tribal story that once upon a time, the, the culture that, that yes. we each come from. We're out of time. I, I can't believe it. The book is <laughs> Screaming for Pleasure, How Horror Makes You Healthy and Happy by S.A. Bradley. Scott Bradley's podcast is Hellbent for Horror. Check it out. Check out the book. Please go to hellbentforhorror.com to learn more on Twitter at Hellbent Horror and Facebook. That page is Hellbent for Horror. Scott, thanks so much for hanging out with me. This was so much fun. Thanks so much, Lisa, for having me. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration.
Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this episode if you dare, because we're talking about happiness meeting horror, why we love to be scared. My next guest is James Kendrick. He is Director of Undergraduate Studies in the Department of Films and Digital Media at Baylor University. He earned a PhD in Communications and Culture from Indiana University, Bloomington, and also holds a BA in English and an MA in journalism, both from Baylor University. His primary research interests are post-classical Hollywood film history, violence in the media, the films of Steven Spielberg, cult and horror films, media censorship and regulation, and cinema, as well as new technologies. He's the author of a few books, but I want to get him to join this conversation so we can talk about those books and the relevance to this discussion of happiness meeting horror. Jim, thanks for joining us on today's show. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, as I was reading your bio, it popped into my mind an original cult classic that I actually do like, and that is the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which uh, for those of us of a certain age, (laughs) (laughs) and I'm dating myself here, that was sort of the beginning of this love of horror films for some of us. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The Rocky Horror Picture Show is is a wonderful homage to classical horror and science fiction. You know, it mashes up all of these different ideas from all these classical horror movies, you know, from Frankenstein to Invasion of the Body Snatchers and, you know, everything else thrown in in between in this, you know, wonderful, crazy mix of of rock music and and humor. It's it, it is a, an, a good entry point in a way into the genre because it it both loves what it's doing. It loves the horror genre and those crazy elements of it, but doesn't mind having a little bit of fun with it as well. And an element of kitsch, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And maybe you can talk about the elements of a great horror film, because I would imagine it breaks down into several categories from the the very serious to the very silly. Oh, absolutely. And that's one of the things to, first of all, understand about the horror genre is that it's not just one thing. Uh, people think of horror movies and they automatically generate a set of expectations. The, the, the primary one being it's going to be scary. It's going to scare me. If it doesn't scare me, it's not a good horror movie. But not all horror movies are conventionally scary. Like when you think about like something that makes you recoil or jump out of your seat or frighten you in the way that, you know, when something suddenly appears, that's what people often think of. But there are all kinds of emotional registers that good horror movies uh, engage with. I mean, some of them are, are more subtle, things like dread. Or, you know, a kind of a, a creepiness, an unsettling creepiness. But then, like you said, with the movies like the Rocky Horror Picture Show or other kinds of more comedic horror movies, horror movies can be very funny. They can be very silly. They don't always have to take themselves super seriously. And some of the really interesting ones will do both. They'll be scary at some points and then they'll be funny at other points. You know, it's sort of like they sometimes refer to them as hot and cold showers. You know, it's like it'll give you something really scary for a while and then let you release that tension with some humor. So let's talk about this hot and cold shower, because this taps into what's going on in our brains when we watch these kinds of films. Yes, absolutely. You know, normally when you watch a movie, most of us enter into a fairly relaxed state. I mean, that's usually why we watch movies is we want to be entertained. We want to relax. And so generally speaking, when you're watching a movie, your body is relaxed. 
and the motor region of your brain kind of shuts down or it unplugs a little bit because there's not a whole lot of use for it. You're not moving around. You're not responding physically for the most part. And that's one of the ways that horror movies are different from a lot of other kinds of movies because when a horror movie is really working and when you're really engaged in it, it can actually bypass that shutoff. It can reactivate your motor region. That's why we squirm in our seats and we jump and maybe we even cry out. You know, there's always talk about people yelling at the screen saying, oh my gosh, don't go in the basement. Why would you do that? That makes no sense logically, but kind of in our, in our, in the primitive regions of our brains, the fight or flight response that, that gets activated when we perceive a threat and the thing with the brain is that it doesn't always distinguish between real and perceived threats. We know consciously that's just light and shadow on a wall, but that primitive core of our brain is saying, no, there's a monster in the basement. You shouldn't go down there. As you're speaking, and when we talk about those times when we're yelling at the screen, you know, don't go in there, you know, don't, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. It brings us fully present, you know, and I'm really tapping into this, this notion of mindfulness expressed in a little bit different way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Because again, when a horror movie is working, when you're engaged with it, it's a it's a very emotionally gripping experience that we we feel very strongly for the characters and we're concerned about them and we're worried about them. And there have even been some theorists who have suggested that one of the things that we love about horror actually derives from arousal transfer theory, which basically suggests that when we have all these negative emotions created by scary situations, that the net effect is that it it has a strong impact on our positive feelings when somebody survives or when they get away or when they escape at the last minute, um, which can be a very rewarding experience and a very, you know, intensely pleasurable experience. Well, it's a bit like film therapy, right? Yeah, yeah. In a way, it can be. And again, kind of like you said at the beginning, it's like it's not necessarily a good prescription for everybody. Not everybody loves horror films. Some people find them they don't get that pleasurable effect, you know, that it's too agitating. It's too anxiety provoking. It's something they just don't enjoy. But I found in, in my own work that a lot of people who didn't think they liked horror films Certain ones they find that they really do like and they find appreciation for the artistry of them and they find appreciation for the kinds of experiences they can have with the really good ones. Well, like Quentin Tarantino, I think that, you know, for somebody who doesn't particularly like horror films myself, when I watch one of his films, I I see that his masterfulness, I see the, the humor in it, you know, and it's mm -hmm. just smart, you know. Yes. Yeah. And that's and again, we have to sort of. You know, just like there are different subgenres of the horror film, different tones that they can evoke, you know, from the scary to the creepy to the funny. There are lots of bad horror movies out there. <laughs> there are lots of and, – and, and really the ratio of bad to good kind of unfortunately weighs pretty heavily toward the bad sometimes just because there's just – you know, they're, they're easy to do not well. But when they're done really well, they can be absolutely fantastic and there's so much – uh, artistry and and thought that goes into the ones that really work. You've written several books. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to sort of talk about their titles for a second. I'd love for you to give me the sort of the nano view of each one. Darkness in the Bliss Out, a, re a reconsideration of films of the films of Steven Spielberg, Hollywood Bloodshed, Violence in 1980s, Right. American cinema mm -hmm. and film violence or is it a film violence, history, ideology, genre? I'm, this right. is all sort of blurred together here. Yes. 
and you've edited the anthology, uh, a companion to the action film, which is your most recent. Yes. Yeah, that one just came out this past spring. So this this is your wheelhouse, researching and teaching this to mm-hmm. others. Yes, yes. I actually I, I teach an undergraduate course in horror film at Baylor, and uh, it, it's always a really interesting experience because I get this really fascinating mix of students. About half of them absolutely love the genre already and have probably seen everything I'm going to show in the class. Another half that it either thinks they don't like the horror genre or has had no experience with it is using the class as a kind of stepping stone into it to kind of try it out. But as far as, uh, you know, the that's the, the books that I've done are, are obviously a pretty wide range, but they tend to focus on genre films. And a lot of them tend to deal with issues of violence, representations of violence, which was one of my early areas of research. So it's not surprising that I would end up writing about the horror genre since, you know, obviously it tends to be a very violent genre because the core of every horror movie is the threat of death. You know, whether it is physical or spiritual, horror movies carry a charge because of the threat of death to the to the characters. And like, for example, the the Spielberg book, Darkness and the Bliss Out, sort of the, the core argument in that book was my attempt to show that Spielberg's films are a lot darker and more complex than they're often given credit for. There's a lot of critical writing about Spielberg that sort of passes him off as, you know, a fantasy producer of movies that, you know, are very easy and very gratifying. But it's like when you really look at his films, they're actually a lot more complicated than that, even the ones that we don't think of as being that way. So like, for example, E.T. I mean, everybody loves E.T., right? Um, It's a wonderful, feel-good movie. But there's a lot going on there. And if you look at E.T., to bring this back to the horror genre, the first 20 minutes of that movie could be a horror movie because it's not established what E.T. is, who he is. Is he dangerous? Is he threatening? And Spielberg actually draws a lot of aesthetics from horror movies like light and shadow and the way he moves the camera and keeps it low and the way he frames things. And it's basically kind of like a little mini horror movie for the first 20 minutes. Uh, When you show films to your students at Baylor, what are your top picks? I mean, I want to hear from the expert, like what are the the, the top picks of the best horror films of all time? Well, when I uh, when I teach that class, I teach it chronologically, because one of the things I really want them to understand is that the horror genre is a genre that has developed over time and that it tends to run in cycles and things, you know, become popular and less popular. So, I mean, we actually start before the cinema and we talk about gothic literature and we talk about uh, the graveyard poets and like basically where a lot of the horrific imagery developed that then got brought into early cinema. And we look at silent films and I show them classical horror films like James Whale's Frankenstein and uh, The Island of Lost Souls, which is an adaptation of The Island of Dr. Moreau. Some of the films that I that I just I love showing. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're, we're going to continue the conversation with Professor James Kendrick about um, happiness meeting horror. Uh, why we enjoy being scared so much. And he's going to give us some of this, his top films that he loves and he loves to show in his classroom. To learn more about the books and the work of Professor James Kendrick, please go to baylor.edu and search out James Kendrick. And on Facebook, you can find him at jim.kendrick1. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? 
Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Continuing the conversation with James Kendrick about happiness meeting horror, why we love to be scared. Jim, I would love for you to share some of those films that you are showing in the classroom. Well, like I was saying, I teach the class chronologically. So we kind of start at the beginning. Um, I actually show some early silent films that interestingly were not at the time considered horror films because that category didn't really exist. Like when Todd Browning released his adaptation of Dracula in 1930, it wasn't the, the term horror didn't really exist. They were kind of struggling to categorize. Sometimes they categorized it primarily as a romance or they would call it like a chiller or, you know, something like that. So <laughs> we start there and we work our way, you know, through the classic era. We watch movies like Frankenstein and the Wolfman. One of my favorites that we show fairly early on is a, is a British horror film made in 1961 called The Innocence, directed by a guy named Jack Clayton. And it's actually an adaptation of Henry James's The Turn of the Screw. And it's a, it's a wonderfully evocative ghost story that you're not sure for most of the movie if it's actually a ghost story or not. That either mm. there might be a supernatural presence going on, as in the book, or this might be all in the mind of the characters, which tend to be some of my – one of my favorite themes in horror films. You get the same thing like in Rosemary's Baby uh, from Roman Polanski in 1968, uh, which I also show in that class. And, uh, of course, you know, we watched Night of the Living Dead, the George A. Romero film that really um, started the zombie subgenre, although the word zombie is never used in the movie. <laughs> but yeah, that pretty much, you know, created that genre. We watched some uh, when we move into the 80s, we watched some slasher films. I show them the original Halloween by John Carpenter and Wes Craven's A Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, but some of the some of the really, you know, we're actually in a kind of renaissance of horror film right now there are some of the best horror films that i've seen have come out in the last couple of years in the last say 10 years or so and there's been this real flowering of really thoughtful engaging emotionally resonant horror films so some of my favorites from recently that i show in that class um, it follows is a is a fascinating one uh, the babadook which if you're a, a lot of horror films revolve around parenting and parenthood and kind of the, the anxieties that, that go with that of trying to protect your child. Um, and that is absolutely one of the most powerful 
The Babadook, and I have not watched it. I've never watched it. I'm going to watch it now, even though it's not my favorite genre. I'm curious. No, it's very scary, but it's more emotionally gripping because you're put in the shoes of this mother who's just trying to hold it together. And then she has this supernatural invasion going on that's revolving around her son who has emotional problems. And it just it basically the horror elevates the the mundane normal problems that they're mm. dealing with and makes them even more intense. What are the most enduring horror film franchises of all time? Is it going back to Wes Craven? Well, you know, you can go back even further than that because, you know, interestingly, horror films were one of the first genres to kind of have franchises. So, for example, you know, you go back to the universal cycle of gothic horror films in the 1930s. There were all these adaptations of gothic novels, Frankenstein, Dracula, The Invisible Man, The Mummy, The Wolfman. You know, they started expanding out and then they started making sequels to those, Dracula's Daughter and so on. And so, you know, those films are sort of the classics of of the genre cinematically. So early on, you had that. And then, you know, you, of course, have franchises like what people tend to think about are the slasher movie franchises, Halloween, Friday the 13th, A Nightmare on Elm Street. And those are always built around the monster, which is, of course, one of the key components of the genre. You have to have an interesting monster and it can come in all different shapes and sizes and elements. And of course, you know, they become kind of characters in their own right, which is how you wind up with, you know, 10 Friday the 13th movies and eight <laughs> Nightmare on Elm Street movies. You know, how, and, and all of them have been regenerated. You know, there was a very popular remake slash sequel of Halloween just last year by David Gordon Green that was a huge hit. And they're already working on several more. So there, there is something cyclical and repetitive that we kind of keep going back to the same ideas and the same horrors because scary things don't ever really stop being scary. You know, and, and you mentioned something very profound in the first segment about, you know, dodging death, you know, yes. and that theme of conquering death or evading death for that period of time and the euphoria, right? The physiological euphoria that comes from the chemical release in the body. And then the experience of being, you know, almost giddy, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's very similar to something like riding a roller coaster where you kind of put yourself in a situation where you perceive a great deal of danger. I mean, obviously you're very safe on a roller coaster. They're engineered and and you're you're okay, but everything about a roller coaster is designed to make you feel like you're completely out of control even though it's tightly controlled. And when you get off at the end, you have this yeah, this feeling of euphoria and pleasure that oh my gosh, I survived. I got through that. That was thrilling, that was exciting and I'm okay. And that feeling of being okay at the end can be very powerful. And horror movies are are very similar because they engage us emotionally and put us into situations that obviously in real life we would never, ever want to be in. Uh, That's one of the powers of movies is that it can put us in places that in real life we wouldn't want to be and make them exciting and, and, and engaging. And so, you know, it basically allows us to vicariously explore these threatening situations, but know that we're going to come out okay at the end. Do you feel in the last 10, 20 years with the advancement in digital technology 
and just the way society has evolved to being or appearing to be a more threatening, scary, violent place, that what is shown and depicted in these films has become more aggressive. In other words, if we amped up what it takes to satisfy ourselves in a horror film more today than, let's say, 30 or 40 years ago. I would say yes and no, because this is another kind of part of that cycle, which is that as special effects technologies develop, like you talk about digital technologies in the 70s and 80s, it was makeup effects technologies, latex and air bladders and things like that. And that pushes filmmakers to oftentimes become more visceral, to become more visual, to show more and more and more. And that can be very effective. It, it, it can be a way of refreshing the genre of like, you know, so when John Landis in 1981 showed a werewolf transformation in an American werewolf in London that was incredibly detailed and very realistic. It was a real eye opener because that was something that had been done with kind of hokey effects in the past or kind of left just off screen. But then there comes a point where when we've seen so much really smart, canny filmmakers can make great horror films by not showing us yeah. by, by pulling back on that and reminding us that, whatever we see in our head is always going to be more fearsome and horrifying than what they can put on the screen. And so they go back to a more evocative, subtle, suggestive kind of horror. And that's what um, some of the really, to me, some of the best horror movies in recent years have, have done exactly that. Well, I, it makes me think of, of Psycho in the Curtain, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Terrifying and, you know, that moment. Was, Absolutely. And it was it was terrifying and it was shocking because they killed the movie star 30 minutes into the movie. And you're not supposed to do that. You know? And there are these great photographs that were taken in a theater. I think it was in, in New York during the initial run of uh, of Psycho. And people are just losing it. I mean, they're screaming, they're jumping out of their chairs, they're grabbing <laughs> their neighbor. I mean, it's like it, it's a it's a great visual encapsulation of what a really great horror movie you know, does when you're really, really engaged with it. What about sleepers? Which horror movies should have received more acclaim than they did? Well, you know, there, there are a couple of, one of the ones, and, and I, I never miss an opportunity to plug this movie. And, and some people would argue it's not even a horror movie. I think it is. Uh, it's a movie called Take Shelter. There was directed by a man, written and directed by a man named Jeff Nichols. Um, and it stars Michael Shannon, and it's basically a story about just an, a husband and father who leaves this very ordinary life, and he starts having these visions of an apocalyptic storm that he becomes convinced is a prophecy and that that the world is coming to an end and that he has to prepare primarily by creating this underground shelter. And he basically starts – pouring all of his family's resources and basically destroying his family in order to create this shelter. So if the prophecies are real, then he is saving his family. If he's not, he's just lost his mind and he's destroying them. <laughs> it's flipped his pizza. <laughs> and, and, and the whole movie is, is the tension of that. But it's, Michael Shannon gives this phenomenal performance and it's this just amazing depiction of – of, of a, a kind of adult parental responsibility and always trying to feel like you're doing the right thing, but not always knowing if you are. And you mentioned that being a theme in a lot of these films, the sort of the mm -hmm. parental responsibility being the safety keeper of the family or the loved ones, and then sort of the terrorization or threat 
to that. Yes. Yeah. And that's something that comes up in, in a lot of horror films. And I think I, maybe I key on to that a lot because, again, the horror genre is is very personal in a lot of ways because some things scare me that might not scare you. I might have anxieties that you don't. So certain horror movies are going to work differently. And yeah. so like one really key example for me is the 1989 film adaptation of Stephen King's Pet Cemetery, which I saw when I was in high school in 1989. I was a sophomore in high school. And I remember it scaring me and I remember being freaked out by some of it. But that was kind of the, the net result of it. I reviewed it when it came out on Blu-ray back in 2012, just a couple of months after my, my son was born. I had just become a father. And I had a completely different experience. I found the film to be absolutely emotionally devastating in a way that I had not when I was 15 because yeah. I didn't have that yeah. experience. I didn't know what it was like to be a father and a parent and seeing the things that happens in that film as a parent is completely different. Well, I think what, what I love about this conversation with you is you give me a new perspective on the horror film that I didn't hold before, you know, something that I was really adverse to like, okay, I could put on a comedy, I could put on a, a documentary, or I could put on a horror movie, and I will opt for the first two. But now when I know that sort of the bliss factor and the intelligence that goes into making these films, it offers me a different perspective. And I, I really appreciate that, actually. Well, good. Yeah. And it's some of the the really good ones they make you think, they make yeah. you consider what's good in your life. They make you feel like, oh my gosh, you know, I had, there's a lot in my life that's really good. I'm glad that I'm not dealing with those horrors that, the, that those characters are dealing with. And, you know, it just makes you kind of assess what's actually what's good in the world. Well, thanks for being with me today. And, and, and thanks for enlightening us with the conversation about, you know, happiness meeting horror, because I think there is synergy there. And to learn more about the work of Professor James Kendrick, please go to Baylor.edu and search out James Kendrick. And on Facebook, you can connect with him at Jim.Kendrick1. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guests today, S.A. Bradley and James Kendrick, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere. From the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio. KBUU-RadioMalibu.net and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.